Well, please turn with me back to the book of Joel, chapter 3, which is where we're going to be looking at now this evening. In my favourite little magazine, I uh, read a story, a letter, uh, in the letter page that was uh, from a a gentleman who said his sister was a nurse in a hospital and she had passed on this story. Apparently a farmer had come in and he'd come into the the A&E ward with a broken arm. And while she was trying to help him, she said to him, how on earth did you do this? You know, it was really at a a really strong break. Uh, And the farmer took a deep sigh and said, well, it was like this. He said, I was in the dairy on my farm and I could feel a stone in my Wellington boot. And uh, he said it was, you know, it's like when you get a stone in your wellies, it's awful. And he said, it's all so muddy and filthy because we have all the cattle come through there. He said, I didn't want to take my shoes off, uh, my boots off. So he said, what I thought I'd do is I'd try and shake the stone out. And what I did was I leant against the fuse box on the wall in the dairy and uh, I stood there shaking my boot violently trying to get the stone out when one of the other farmhands came in, saw me with my hands on the main fuse box and thought I was having an electric shock. So they picked up a fence post that had been left lying around and brought it crashing down on my arm to break the connection with the fuse box and that's that's how he broke his armor that's a true story now I tell that story tonight because I don't want anybody to come down on me heavy uh, because uh, of a misunderstanding uh, tonight tonight I want to speak to you about the battle of Armageddon but please don't think I'm going to be able to tell you everything about this subject in one sermon I'm not going to be able to Uh, Because there's lots and lots of passages about this event in the Bible. And only collectively can you see all the details together clearly. Uh, I'm afraid I haven't got it on the PowerPoint. But if you want to study them as they appear in Scripture in this order, uh, then it's worth writing them down. Because this is the order they come in. In Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 6, we have the Battle of Armageddon. Geddon from Christ's perspective. And uh, he, he is seen coming from the east uh, in a robe dipped with blood. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 44 and 45, we have the Battle of Armageddon from Antichrist's perspective. So you see you have a, an equal and opposite there, a, a balance. Christ's perspective and then Antichrist's perspective. In Joel chapter 3, we have it from the Gentiles' perspective. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And in Zechariah chapter 12 to 14, we have it from Israel's perspective. So that's just an ever balancing out. In Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 to 16, we have it from the devil's perspective, when he sent out those evil spirits to gather the people. And then in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21, we have it from heaven's perspective perspective when Christ comes back so again what a beautiful symmetry there is in the Bible and uh, only the Holy Spirit could arrange that 
But those are the passages that you need to study uh, to to get a full picture of it. But tonight I'm just going to have a look at Joel chapter 3 as best I can in the time that we've got. So please don't come down on heavy on me if I don't say something that's your favorite bit. You know, the Mount of Olives splitting or something like that. uh, Because I'm going to be limiting myself to this passage especially tonight. But first of all, what is Armageddon? Because you know what, when we talk about Armageddon, to the people in the world, that means all sorts of things, doesn't it? Uh, if you have he- uh, heavy snow in winter, the tabloid press say, Snowmageddon. You know, uh, when they're talking about global warming, uh, they think about Armageddon. Uh, when you see heavy traffic, it's Carmageddon. Uh, and basically, the world thinks of it as any disaster, don't they? Anything that's a crisis, they stick Mageddon on the end. And it leaves you feeling that it's some sort of disaster. In fact, there was a film some years ago called Armageddon, which was about a meteor coming to crash into the earth. And that confused a lot of people. Well, it's not an event like that. It is a battle. That's what it is. When we look at it in the Bible, it is a battle. That's why we call it the Battle of Armageddon. And the Bible says that the world is going to go away from God, as it has been ever since the the curse in Genesis chapter 3, and it's going to continue its rebellious route away from God right the way up to the end of time in the last days, which is what we can confirm is happening in our own day. Uh, Just this week in our family Bible times, we read those words in Philippians chapter where Paul says to the church at Philippi that you're to shine as lights as you hold out the word of God in this crooked and perverse generation. That's, that's a generation, that's our generation, a crooked and perverse generation. The world isn't getting better, it's getting worse. And it's going to continue that way. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come for his church uh, and take us home at the rapture, as he promised. And then there will be a seven-year period of judgment on the earth called the tribulation. And at the end of that time, Christ is going to return with his church at the battle of Armageddon. So the Armageddon is a a battle. And uh, it's... Uh, actually a battle at Megiddo, a place in the land of Israel. And if you want to see where Megiddo is, that's it there. It's a, a, that's the plain of Megiddo, as it is uh, often called in, uh, in geogra- geographical terms. And Napoleon, when he saw it and he'd fought battles there, he said this is the ideal battle par- uh, battleground to be able to manoeuvre armies on. And he thought this was uh, absolutely confirmation of scripture fulfilment. Uh, But it is where the battle is going to actually start. It's not where it's going to finish. It's going to be where the armies assemble. And what is going to happen is that at the end of the tribulation, the world's ruler at that time, the Antichrist, is going to gather the nations to come down to Jerusalem to the Jewish people and to try and kill off the Jewish people, finish off what Hitler started, the final solution, wipe out the Jews. And that's what we see, especially in Zechariah chapter 14. And when he does that, the Jewish people are going to repent and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return from heaven in power and glory and he is going to save them. And so that is, in the nutshell, what's going to happen at the Battle of Armageddon. Christ is going to come and defeat the forces of Antichrist gathered against the Jews.
Now, you may say to yourself, well, hang on a minute, John. I don't see the word Armageddon mentioned anywhere in this text. So why do you think this is Armageddon? Well, it's true. Armageddon itself isn't mentioned in this text, but the valley and the battle is. And it's known under different names in other places. In fact, if you look in verse uh, verse 2, the Lord says, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat which is what he says down in verse 12 as well, the valley of Jehoshaphat. And that's another name for the same valley. You see, this Megiddo goes right the way down. It is a plain that turns into a valley that goes right the way down to the gap between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. And that is the valley of Jehoshaphat, where uh, King Jehoshaphat had a great battle as well. It's also known in scripture as the valley of Esdraelon. And it's... uh, the, the, the place uh, at the end of time. And so this is where we see uh, the, the Armageddon connection and with the events that are described here and the apocalyptic language that connects it with the book of Revelation. So what we see is Joel is prophesying this battle in the last chapter of his book. Now, Joel was one who had a prophetic vision from God who lived in the 8th century before Christ. We don't know really, you know, exactly pinpointing the dates for Joel because he doesn't tell us any dating material. Other kings tell us that their their ministry was in the third year of this king and that king. Joel doesn't do that. But by absence of the mention of a king in this book, we believe that he was a prophet in the days of Joash when Athaliah, Queen Athaliah, was on the throne. And that's why there's no mention of a king here. But the nation was still with their temple and they were still in the land, but they were going away from God. And Joel was warning them that as a result of their actions going away from God, there would be three invasions. In chapter 1, he saw an invasion of locusts, a plague of locusts coming in to judge them in that day and in that generation. In chapter 2, he saw an invasion of strange beings. That's the best way to describe it. When you come to Revelation 9, which is the the New Testament counterpart, you realize those strange beings are demons. And that's something that's going to happen in those last days in the tribulation. And the third invasion is in this chapter when the land is invaded by the Gentile armies uh, following the Antichrist. So Joel is warning the people to repent and come back to the Lord. And that's his key message, repent and turn back to the Lord. And the encouraging part is that if you look in the last verse of chapter 2, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. The Jewish people will come back to the Lord and they will respond eventually to the message that Joel gave eventually. But Joel's last chapter gives this third invasion, the battle of Armageddon, the invasion of the Gentiles into the land. And that's what I want us to look at for our study in the scriptures tonight. I want us to see it under these five headings. The period of Armageddon, the purpose of Armageddon, the proclamation of Armageddon, the punishment of Armageddon, and finally the protection in verse 16. 
First of all, then, the period of Armageddon in verse 1. You'll notice verse 1 says, For behold, and behold is a key word, as I try to emphasize in Scripture, uh, to get your attention to something. There's two beholds in this chapter. Uh, The next one's down in verse 7. But he says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. And then he goes on. Now, when we compare all the scriptures together, we can see, as I've said, that the Battle of Armageddon takes place at the end of the tribulation period. But Joel here, specifically at this point, refers it simply as being the time when Israel comes back into the land. When he brings back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. And you know what, dear friends, one of the most important events in modern history took place on the 14th of May, 1948, when the nation of Israel became a recognized nation by the United Nations back on the map of the world again. It had been off the map for 2,000 years, and a nation which had been scattered and persecuted with the aim of destroying them survived and came back with their own ancient language, back to their ancient land, and re-established, were re-established as a nation again. That was an act of God. And it was a mile marker in history that uh, the events of, of the last days had well and truly kicked in. All of Bible prophecy needed this to happen in the last days because Israel had to be back in the land. All the things Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, well, at least most of the things in Matthew 24 needed this to happen as well. And Joel says here, this is when this will happen, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. It's an amazing thing. You know, in 1882, approximately 25,000 Jews lived in the land. Now today, over 6.2 million of them live there. They've been coming back from all over the world. And every day the Jewish people pray, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles. And that's their prayer. And it's beginning to, it's been happening since 1948. So it's been a major sign. And I want you to register that tonight because that tells us where we are in history. We're, we're not at the end, but we're moving very fast now towards it, in terms of history anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, we're moving forward towards the end times. Uh, a Christian author by the name of Sale Harrison wrote a book called The Remarkable Jew. And in that book he said this, The Jew is truly God's timepiece. He is the center of all prophecy, as the Holy Land is the center of Bible or biblical geography. Watch the Jew... Consider his movements in the light of, of the word of God and you have your finger on the time of the great world movements which are still to take place. And he wrote that uh, way back last century. And that means, dear friends, that you and I need to take on board where we are in history and think about being ready for the coming of the Lord ourselves. Because we are moving more towards that time. If the battle of Armageddon is coming closer, then the Lord's coming for his church is coming even closer. So let's look up and uh, be encouraged. As the Lord said, when these things begin to happen, lift up your heads. 
Second thing we see here is the purpose of Armageddon in verses 2 to 8. And the purpose of Armageddon, as we see revealed here, is to pay the Gentiles back for their treatment of the, land, of the people of Israel. In the book of Zechariah, never mind a prophet at the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8, the Lord said that he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. And you know the apple of your eye is, 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 the, is not just you know, your heart's desire. Your apple eye of your eye is a biological thing and it's the, it's, the, it's the part of your eye most sensitive. And you know your eye is geared up for protection. So to make it hard for anything to come near to your eye. And if I was to come up to you and to go to poke my finger in your eye, do you know what your instant reaction would be? Be move my hand out of the way. You say, I'm not going to let you do that. Well, God says that's what people are doing when the nations of the world go against Israel. They're touching the apple of light. It's like going to God and going to poke him in the eye. Can you imagine the audacity of trying to do something like that? And so God says he will react against that. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant given in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that he who curses Abraham will be cursed. And that's what we see here in these judgments on the Gentiles for their sins. We see that there's a number of sins here that, uh, that they are guilty of. I don't know if I've got them all listed out here. No, I haven't. Okay, so I'll have to give them to you audibly. Uh, But the first one in verse 2 is that they are guilty of dividing the land. He says, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. On account of my people, my heritage Israel, and what a beautiful name that is, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land. You know, I heard about some boys who came back from the park one day with a football. And their mother looked at their football and said, hang on a minute. She said, that's not your football. She said, where did you find it? Where did you get it? And they said, well, we found it over the park. And uh, she said, well, are you sure it was lost? And they said, yeah, it definitely was lost. We saw the people looking for it. (laughs) That's boys for you, isn't it? Okay. Now... There's a little parallel in that silly story with the nation of Israel. You know, nobody cared about the land of Israel until the Jews went back to the land. And then suddenly it became the most prized possession in Islam and everything else like that. And the nations of the world have wanted what the Jews had. And they've been dividing the land up ever since. In World War I in 1918, the first division came when the land... Uh, that was uh, won back from, by General Allenby, was divided up and it, what was supposed to be given to the Jewish people for their contribution to World War I to help the British through Heim Weizmann, who was the Jew who invented dynamite, smokeless dynamite, was to be the Balfour, De- Balfour Declaration and the land of Israel. But they chopped some of that land up and they gave it to the Hashemite, Jew, uh, Hashemite Arabs as a result of helping Lawrence of Arabia. They immediately divided the land they'd promised and gave it up. 1947 and 48, they did the same again. In 1994, they divided the land up again, land for peace with the Oslo Accord. And uh, they started what was called the peace process, which was really a piece-by-piece process. We take a bit of every time from Israel and give it to the nations. 
And that's where the dividing of the land started in modern history. But God says, that's my land, and it belongs to my people, my heritage Israel. And uh, you scattered them, and now you're dividing up their land, and I'm not happy about it. And that was uh, uh, one of the reasons he cites here for bringing the nations together at this place for his judgment. Not only that, but he says in verse 3, for they're casting lots for the people. He says, they have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy as a payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Now, this is uh, stuff going back to the book of Esther in the Bible when the Jewish people were sold by lot. Do you remember the Pur Purim as the Jewish, Jewish people celebrate it? The word Pur is the word for lot. And Haman cast lots for the people of Israel uh, to choose the date and for the selling of the Jewish people so that he may execute them according to his hatred of them. And you say, but John, that was hundreds and thousands of years ago. Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference to God. His judgment stands for sins committed in the past. You know, Ecclesiastes 3 tells us God will demand an account for that which is past. And by the way, that ought to be a warning to all of us. You know, we may think to ourselves, oh, you know, the things I did wrong, I did in my youth. It was the foolishness of my youth. But I, I'm not like that now. Let me tell you something. Those sins in your youth, they need to be repented of too. We need to turn away and ask God to forgive us all our sins and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation for the whole of our lives and all the things we've done wrong and trust Christ to save us from our sins. God is going to hold the Gentile nations here guilty for selling his people, casting lots for them. And uh, what a wicked thing that was to sell children for temporary pleasures such as a harlot or wine and yet ruining the lives of a boy and a girl that they may drink or have a one-night stand. And that's what they were guilty of doing. Thirdly, also for stealing God's holy vessels. Verse 4, he says, Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me, retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Now, when did Tyre and Sidon and Philistia take away God's prized possessions? Well, Tyre and Sidon, their taking away of uh, the prized possessions of God is connected, I believe, with the Babylonian captivity. And you remember Belshazzar took the, the vessels that had been taken with Nebuchadnezzar uh, at the time of the Babylonian invasion and drank blasphemously with them in the, temp in the temple of his gods. Uh, but the, in the days of the Philistines, it goes right the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 5 when they captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it and put it in the temple of their God. And they said, there you go, you see, our God is greater than their God. And they thought that was a triumph and one up. Well, God has held on to that and he's going to call the nations to judgment on account of it. There was no repentance for what they did, you see. And then for selling into slavery. Verse 6. Also all the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. You have sold to the Greeks. That you may remove them far from their borders. 
Now, there's no, uh, the Bible commentators say they, they don't know when this actually happened because it says they were sold to the Greeks and by Joel's time that hadn't happened. The word for Greeks there is the word uh, from uh, the, in Genesis chapter 10 for the nations uh, of the Gentiles um, from Japheth and uh, Javan it is as we would say in Hebrew um, but it's the Greeks uh, the Greek speaking world and they can't point to a definite time when that happened and I think this is actually something that's future when you have unfulfilled prophecy and you can't see a fulfillment the only other place to put it is in the future when God's word will be fulfilled and one of the strange things we see in Revelation 18 is that in the last days uh, the people will be trading the bodies and souls of men that's a shocking thing. And I remember as a teenager reading that. I thought, really? We've done away with slavery. Slavery's gone. But now I'm in my 50s. We're reading of people being trafficked for slavery all the time. And uh, this is a modern crime that's taking place in our days. And it will happen to the Jewish people as well. And so for all these uh, and other sins as well that God hasn't list. God has said he will bring the nations to judgment at the battle of Armageddon. And it will be payback time. You know, I read of a, a burglar, burglar in, uh, in America who was doing old-fashioned smash-and-grab burglaries on jewellery stores. And his, uh, his style was very blunt but very effective for quick gain. And he would take a brick break the window, throw it at the window of the jewellery store and smash all the things in the window and clear off with it very quickly. Well, this happened one day when he found a jewellery store that didn't have its uh, shutters down overnight and he thought, great, a gift for me at night. And he threw a brick at the window and what he didn't know was this had specially reinforced glass and the brick actually bounced like a rubber ball off the window and came back and knocked out the guy who was the burglar. And all this was captured on CCTV and uh, the police just had to turn up and pick him up and take him away with all the evidence. You know what that is? That's called poetic justice, isn't it? Well, that's what God says he's going to do with the nations. He said, you, you retaliate against me, I'm going to retaliate against you. And in verse 7, he says, uh, after rescuing the Jewish people from their land, he said, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. And the things you've done to Israel will be done to you. And you know, we ought to take that very seriously. Jonathan Edwards says, God's judgment is like water building up behind a dam. And eventually when it reaches the highest point, it can hold on no longer and it will break forth. And that's what we see happen here. It should make us think very carefully about our need for salvation. Let's see the third thing here. And the third thing is the proclamation of Armageddon in verses 9 through to 12. I'm going to pass over verse 8 because, again, I think it's unfulfilled at this stage, other than to say the Sabaeans are the, the people of Yemen. 
But in verse 9, there's a, a change of speaker. And now Joel is speaking. Actually, if you look at the text in Hebrew, you can see that it's uh, uh, the Lord speaking, Joel speaking, the Lord speaking, and Joel speaking. It's almost like a conversation. In fact, the last line in verse 8 says, for the Lord has spoken. But now Joel speaks, and Joel says this, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Uh, I heard someone define preaching recently as the art of talking in another man's sleep. And looking around tonight, I, uh, <laughs> I wonder if that's true. Let's, let's not try and test that theory. The art of talking in another man's sleep. Well, this is what Joel is doing. He is talking to those who are asleep. And he says, wake up, wake up the mighty men, prepare for war. And he's calling the nations to awaken themselves to the day and age they're in and realize that they're heading for the battle of Armageddon. And he calls them to come to Megiddo, let them come up. And uh, like Genesis 6 and 7 in the Bible, where God brought the animals by grace to Noah. Noah didn't have to go out and re- catch all those animals to put them in the ark. God brought them to Noah so they could come into the ark. So God, in his power, is going to bring them to the battle of Armageddon, where they will be brought down by a sovereign work of grace. Now, a uh, sovereign work of grace, a sovereign work of God. It's not going to be grace, it's going to be judgment. Uh, but uh, this is the other side of Revelation 16, uh, where we see the, the, how the devil does it as well. So we see the hand of God sovereignly even over the evil one in that. I'll let you follow that up later. But verse 10, we have a call to arms. And uh, he says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, here's an interesting thing. He says, take your farming equipment and make them into weapons it's actually the opposite of what Isaiah says when Isaiah says and Micah says it as well his prophecy turn your weapons into farming equipment but that's after the battle of Armageddon this is before and he's saying make weapons for yourself and when I was preparing this I couldn't help thinking you know this is an interesting reference because what it tells us is the people of the world at that time don't have any weapons the weapons are in the hands of those who are in authority but nobody in the world has any any weapons and interestingly enough and i'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong all right i'll let you fight this one out i can see arguments both ways but isn't that what we see happening in the news right now we hear about the gun lobbyists on one side in America saying the people should have guns and we hear other people saying no look we've had all these killings and that's a result of guns and they're trying to take guns away from the people in America and this is one of the verses that I think is is going to be fulfilled in the last days the people aren't going to have any weapons so God's going to say for you to come down turn your 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 everyday things into weapons and he says let the weak say i am strong and i know all the christians are dying to start singing let the weak say i am strong but without wanting to be critical i have to say that that song takes this verse out of context it's not saying to the christians let the weak say i'm strong 
It's saying that those who are in rebellion against God psych themselves up to come to the battle. And you know how people love to do that, don't they? I can do this. I've got this. I've got this. Let the weak say, I'm strong. I'm strong. Because you think of the audacity of this. They're going to come to fight against God. And in the tribulation, people are going to know by the end of the tribulation, that's what they're doing. And they're going to try to overthrow the Lord himself. So the Lord, in his mockery of them, says, let the weak say I am strong. And in verse 11, uh, Joel says, assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. He calls them all to come uh, uh, to, to one place for judgment. And then he prays to God and he says, cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. And as he's calling the nations, he's calling the Lord to come down with his mighty ones. Now, who's the Lord's mighty ones? Do you know what? I'm looking at them tonight. It's the church of Jesus Christ. We're taken to heaven and we come back as the bride of Christ on those white horses, those riding horses riding with him, coming back to the land of Israel. And uh, we will come back in answer to this prayer. And then in verse 12, he repeated again, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. God is bringing them down to this place uh, for an act of judgment where he will sit and judge them. A lot of Bible commentators connect this with the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25 that the Lord Jesus said, where he said when he comes back in his father's glory to sit on his throne, he will judge the nations. That's what it says in Matthew 25. He will judge the nations and they will be judged uh, for what they have done to his Brethren. Well, who are the Lord Jesus' brethren? The Jewish people, yeah. People after his birth. So how they've treated the Jewish people will be the, uh, the reason for their judgment. So he's going to sit there uh, to judge them. So better to uh, respond to the preaching of the word of God today than to hear such a proclamation then come to judgment. What a terrifying thing that will be. At that time, the final thing, uh, fourth thing we see here is the punishment uh, uh, of Armageddon in verses 13 to 16. Because then Joel puts uh, the, 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 the judgment into, uh, into description, the actual act having gathered all the nations in his prophecy. You know, in the early 1970s, there was a cartoon in a Christian publication that depicted the Battle of Armageddon. And the drawing included a five-star general standing on a hill overlooking a military battle taking place in the valley below with all the nations there. It was clearly Armageddon. And one of his juniors taps him on the shoulders and points to the sky where there's a classic depiction of the Lord Jesus coming from the heavens with his church. And he says, Sir, I think the direction of the battle is about to change. And that's what we see here. Uh, The judgment comes from heaven. And God says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. 
Now, this is very interesting if you study the whole book of Joel, because Joel has talked about in the early part of the judgments that were coming earlier on and the famine that was coming and how the vats and everything were empty and there was no wine even for the, for the winos in chapter 1 and the people were to mourn, there was no wine for the sacrifices and so on. But now he uses farming language to gather, uh, to describe the judgment coming. And the sickle, the heart put the sickle in for the harvest is ripe. Revelation 14 uses that same analogy. And the Lord treads the winepress of his wrath. And you can see somebody treading the winepress, crushing the grapes. It's a picture of the Lord coming in judgment on the armies gathered there. And in verse 14, we have one of the most powerful verses I think Joel ever spoke. He said, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And it's a, it's a verse that's often used a little bit wrongly to say that the, the people gathered there that day will have a chance to make a decision for Jesus. I'm afraid that's not true. I used to think that was the case myself, but I, it's not true. The decision here is not the people having one last chance to become Christians, because by this time they will have already decided that and received the mark of the beast, which is irreversible. They wouldn't be in the Antichrist army without it. Uh, and the valley of decision here is not their decision, it's the Lord's decision. It's harut in Hebrew, and it's God's decision to act in judgment and it's a picture of the nations of the world gathered in one place for judgment by God what a sobering reality that that's where the world's history is going in its rebellion against God and in verse 15 before the Lord comes there's going to be a very dramatic pause effect it says the sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness do you know, there are going to be five blackouts, at least, in the, in the last days, where the sun will go dark. And there will be no light from the sun, and there will be no light from the moon. And Joel prophesies this one at the Battle of Armageddon, the fifth one. And uh, even the stars will diminish their brightness. Now, I don't know exactly how God is going to do that. Uh, but there is in, in astronomy something called an occultation. And an occultation, nothing to do with the occult, so it, but the word occult means hidden, which is what the devil tries to do. But it's a word that's used in astronomy for when a planet gets hidden by another body. And it's possible that what God is going to do is to block out the light of the sun and the light of the moon and the light of the stars by means of occultation or very simply just by his miraculous power like we saw in the story of Hezekiah this morning that the Lord would just say to the sun, the moon, the stars, turn off. And it will all go dark all over the, all over the world. It will go cold as well because we'll lose the heat from the sun. But that'll have the effect of making everybody stop in fear. And suddenly they will see a light. And that light will be the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming in power and glory, the light of the world. And he who they have rejected will return, and every eye will see him, as it says in the book of Revelation. 
And I've got to say, I absolutely love the next verse. It says, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake. You know, when the Lord comes, he is going to roar. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's going to let out a mighty roar. Do you know, a lion lets out its roar before it attacks. And the purpose is to paralyze with fear the creature it's it's going to attack and reduce it to to nothing so it can't move. And uh, I remember one time when I was at a zoo. I can't remember which one it is. It might have been the Whipsnade Zoo. I can't remember. But I remember going to, I was much younger, and I went to see the lions. And uh, they had these lions pacing around in their their cage. And you could go to the other side of the cage and see the lions in their den behind glass. And they had some cubs and they were uh, playing around with their cubs. And the cubs were aggravating the dad lion and uh, he was pushing them aside. And I remember thinking, standing there really close up to the glass watching it, when he roars, I'm not going to move, I'm just going to stand here. And the lion must have known what I was thinking and he let out a huge one. And you know it's, it's guttural, isn't it? It's, it's from way down. Like, human beings can't go that low. But even though I was behind, you know, like, really reinforced, strong, protected glass, I stepped back. The power of that roar. Well, I want to tell you, that is not even a fraction of what it's like when Christ comes and how he will call in judgment. And this is something, the next book of the Bible, the book of Amos, if you just look over the page, Amos chapter 1 verse 2. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. He picks up the theme as well. The punishment is going to be terrifying for those who set themselves against the Lord and against his people. So here's the final thing. The final thing we're told here is the good news for Israel. And that's the protection of Armageddon. Because it says at the last part of verse 16, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Whilst the enemy is going to be in fear, the people of God are going to be kept safe. They're going to be sheltered by the Lord and strengthened by him. And that really sort of presents uh, which side of you of this are you on type of picture for us to finish on as we come to an end of our message today. Are you going to be on the side that is protected on that day by the Lord or on the side of those who will be punished and judged uh, by the Lord? I wouldn't want to be on the other side. During the Civil War of America, a lady came up to Abraham Lincoln and said, Oh, Mr. President, I feel so sure that God is on our side, don't you? And he replied, Madam, I am more concerned that we should be on God's side. That's the way to see it. And I want to ask, are you on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Gather to him if you haven't yet done so. Those, that day is coming One day in the future. It may even uh, come in the near future. You make your decision before God does. 
The valley, the multitudes will be gathered in the valley of decision. You make your decision for the Lord now and be in the safety of his hands. I hope this has been helpful to you tonight. The Lord bless you.